0: Hello and welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy, and in this episode, I'd like to welcome back American journalist, author, and filmmaker Sebastian Younger. Sebastian was featured on the show in March of 2019. I feel like our conversation last year is even more relevant today as our entire society is navigating a deadly pandemic that has brought with it great uncertainty while disrupting many of our social norms and economy. And so it seems fitting to follow up with Sebastian and pose a few questions to him that are specific to the crisis that is the COVID-19 pandemic. Sebastian, welcome back.
1: Thank you. Nice Nice to talk to you.
0: Sebastian, we were thrust into this pandemic, and I'm wondering, in your opinion, what are we learning about ourselves as a society right now?
1: Well, there was a great article by George Packer that I just started. He used to write for the New Yorker about one of the things that's revealing is the systems within our society that aren't working very well uh, or that are costing society a lot. So we had a huge amount of mobility and burned a lot of fossil fuels. And that's now sort of collapsing. There's a lot of obesity and health issues in our society. Those are the people that are most at risk, Um, obviously we were a sort of physically unhealthy population, uh, those people are now at risk, and that poor health is not evenly distributed. It's 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 concentrated at the lower end of the economic spectrum, so then we get to talk about it's income disparity and all that. In a tribal sense, if you look at society as a close collection of people that are that need each other to survive, the society that we have built is amazing in many ways, but it's actually lost that deep connection between individuals and I think one of the things that the disease is showing is where our society is sort of malfunctioning, but also where our resilience is. We There are first responders, medical personnel who are literally risking death like soldiers do to take care of other people they don't even know. And that is a supreme human value that you don't often get to see at this scale. So I would say the, good, the news is sort of good and bad. The human species is amazing modern society, which is amazing in many ways, also now we realize has these sort of Achilles heels that I think we're going to have to deal with.
0: Right. And so on that note, what does history and anthropology inform us about such events?
1: Well, when a society is traumatized, uh, it could either uh, create more equality or less equality, depending on what how you want to handle it? Um, equality, of course, is the great binding force. A society that's not very equal is not very uh, is not very tightly bound together. Uh, societies that are tightly bound together are more likely to survive. So, one of the things that Western society has set up on the dynamics is a is a uh, an alarming income gap between very rich and very poor, which I mean, it's very, very complicated, but there's a downside to that. Whatever you want to argue about the merits of capitalism, there's a downside to having income disparity. And so, I, you know, I think what we have to look at right now is what what was it about modern society that predisposed us to being vulnerable to this? Uh, airplane travel, for example. I mean, I've been on a million airplanes, so I'm I shouldn't I should critique, but. The great fluidity between populations in the world was one of the things that spreads pandemics, and so that's and it and it costs the environment a huge amount in terms of fossil fuel use and all that stuff. So if you really step back and look at it in a sort of in a in a, in a sort of global way, I would say that the disease is show is showing us the things that we have to attend to to make the planet sustainable and to make society just and equitable. You know, of course in a in a anthropological sense, no human society can live in an environment in an unsustainable way and if there are too many internal divisions in that society it's 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 going to divide it's not going to sustain itself it will will not endure so you know I think we could despite the enormous and tragic costs of of this event, I think one thing we could do is tr- try to use it in a way. It allows us for a deeper understanding of our own society and, and the place that it occupies in the world.
0: Absolutely, and we keep hearing the term "essential," "non-essential." How is this event redefining what society views as "quote essential"?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, there was a uh, some years ago a, a sort of debate about whether this sort of like reflexive salutation to a veteran, "thank you for your service." Whether that's good or not, right? And I've heard both sides argue. But one thing that I say when I when asked about it is, listen, if you want to say thank you to your service, thank you for your service to a veteran. That's fine, but don't stop there, because society needs many, many different kinds of people to survive. We need oil workers just as much as soldiers. For that matter, we need grade school teachers just as much as soldiers. We, we need doctors, right? We need everybody to function in their roles to keep society going. So one of of the things that I think is is missing in our society is a real appreciation for the people that keep us all alive and healthy and well. And, of course, right now the focus is on medical personnel uh, and first responders. And there may come a moment in our history where the focus will be on school teachers. I don't know. Uh, there are people that are not necessary for survival. I would say certain forms of, uh, of, of uh, financial training isn't it, is, is it essential. Uh, race car drivers, you know, whatever. I mean, I like, you know, you can sort of pick them out, and it's not that those things shouldn't exist, but we have to understand there are groups of people we depend on, and they need to be honored, and any healthy tribal society would do that honoring reflexively. We have to sort of remember to do it because we live in such a complicated society that we're actually removed from the very things and the very people that keep us alive.
0: Right. And lastly, as we begin to wrap up before we dive into the rebroadcasting of our previous episode, you brought up loss earlier, and I wanted to talk to you about that, you know, the disruption to our normal grieving processes, wakes and funerals and the like. What is the impact of that on individuals and our society at large?
1: I, we're humans are, are a social species we're social primates right and we we are greatly reassured by the presence of others uh there's a very easy way to sort of prove this or test it try going camping in the woods by yourself and see how well you sleep at night i mean if you're asleep in the woods at night you're very very vulnerable even to things i mean even to predators that aren't there right i mean you know the, the woods are basically safe now Oh, instinctively, we don't know that. You sleep very, very poorly. If you go camping with a bunch of people, you sleep much better because you know that in the proximity of others, you're safe. Well, that's true emotionally as well. When we gather for a wedding or a funeral or a graduation or even a birthday party, it reassures us and reconfirms our participation in the group of people around us. And that is that that makes us feel incredibly good. So trying to do those things with social distancing and isolation, I mean, it's the lesson we should have learned from our iPhones. I mean, iPhones have really created distance between people. I mean, you see whole families at restaurants, everyone looking down at their lap at their iPhone and not really engaging with each other. That's a really tragic cost to that new amazing technology. Well, right now, we're actually being deprived of the ability to be together. And I think in that, we're maybe able to experience how valuable it is so uh, those ceremonies are not going to have the emotional value that they would have, but hopefully this is limited. And hopefully this is not just a new way we live, but there'll be a vaccine. Eventually we could return to those to those experiences, but hopefully with a new knowledge of how incredibly valuable they are. And I th- hope one of the things that comes out of I don't I don't have an iPhone. I think they're not good for you. Basically, I have a flip phone. I try to keep that kind of communication at a minimum in my life. Um, and one of the things I hope that we come back to after this is has passed is a renewed understanding of how valuable it is, how essential and important it is to communicate one-on-one in the flesh directly with each other rather than having everything be mediated through a screen.
0: I really appreciate that. Is there anything else you want to add today? Uh,
1: you know, only that it's a... Uh, uh, I would say almost a kind of sacred duty to keep those around you safe and to keep your society well and safe and protected and what that requires of each of us individually is now counterintuitive and very complicated and difficult to do but i think if we keep in mind that we are not just living for ourselves we are living for other people in society and we're living for future generations if we could keep that in mind it might help us do the things that are really hard to do Uh, whatever your job, whether you're a fireman or a teacher or retired or whatever it is, we could all do something. Uh, And if you put it in that context of the whole society and the future generations, it might be a little bit easier.
0: Sebastian, thank you for sharing that with us. Now let's revisit our conversation from early 2019. Thrilling and
2: thought-provoking are just two words to describe the work produced by our guest in this episode. Sebastian Younger is an American journalist, author, and filmmaker whose work demands contemplation regarding what history, science, and experience tells us about the ability to endure hardship and how to navigate our current cultural terrain. Younger's work includes the books Tribe and The Perfect Storm, as well as the Academy Award nominated film Restrepo, which he co-directed with Tim Hetherington. Younger holds a degree in anthropology, has a propensity towards dangerous jobs, and has an admiration for the working man. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Sebastian, it's a pleasure to have you on the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast.
3: Thank you so much.
2: (laughs) We have a long list of things to get through today, and I want to dive right in, starting with your most recent book. The complete title is Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging, and it dissects the tribal connection that has been lost in our modern society and offers explanation for the high rate of veterans struggling to adapt to civilian life. Why did you want to write this book?
3: I started working as a war reporter in the early 90s. And um, I was in Afghanistan in the 90s. 9-11 happened. Eventually, I wound up with American forces in combat, something early on I never thought that I would be doing as a journalist. Um, And uh, I was amazed at how hard the deployments were that I saw, but also how reluctant the guys were. Um, at the end of the day, how reluctant they were to come back to this country. I mean, of course, they wanted to. Their girlfriends were here. Their their, their families, et cetera. But, but part of part of them, a significant part of them actually was comfortable in these small outposts in Afghanistan with each other fighting. And these were very dangerous places and very a lot of hardship. And it didn't make sense unless you saw it through the prism of that people are much more comfortable in a close group with each other – facing difficult situations than they are individually in a society that doesn't offer much in the way of hardship or challenge. And if you look at it like that, if you look at it in terms of our evolution as a species, which mostly happened in small groups, exactly like a platoon, if you look at it like that, suddenly it makes sense to miss combat. Suddenly it makes sense to not want to come home. And, I, and while I was thinking about that, I remembered um, a, a uncle figure that I had. Sort of mentor figure early in my life, a guy named Ellis who was half uh, Lakota Sioux, half Apache. And I remember him telling me that all throughout the history of this country along the frontier, um, this is how he phrased that. He said white people were always running off to join us Indians, but we Indians never ran off to join the white people. And suddenly I thought of the American soldiers. I'm like, oh, right, of course. Everyone wants to go towards the tribal and away from the industrial, away from the modern – Uh, And so I thought that that merited a book because it's sort of a universal human truth, I think.
2: There's so much to dissect from that response. And I want to go back so that we really appreciate all the experience that you've had and all the things that you've brought to the table, taking a moment to revisit your early life. Growing up, you were a cross-country runner, and I've heard you say that running was at the core of your identity and then eventually you got a master's degree in anthropology and you did your master's on ultra running in the Native American communities and you studied, or you did your field work yeah. on a Navajo reservation. What did you learn about yourself in that process?
3: I was just a BA, by the way. It wasn't a master's. I wasn't smart enough to quite climb that tree. <laughs> I didn't do but... my
2: homework that well. <laughs> That's
3: okay. That's all right. I don't want Wesleyan to come chasing after me. So I was a. I was a um, I was a really good distance runner. I won a lot of races. I set a lot of records and um, and I was extremely proud of it and As a young person searching for an identity, that was a good one for me and uh, that I you know I could sort of run all day if I needed to. I mean it was I just felt like I always had that in my back pocket if I ever needed it for some reason and uh, and so when I was out on the reservation, um, you know one of the things I realized I think is that uh that that bond of community. Is, is absolutely crucial to the human experience it, and it's crucial for survival when you're in a situation that's w- with a lot of adversity, with a lot of danger, with a lot of hardship and um, the less hardship and danger there is, the more we can afford to act individually which is great, right? I mean if you can lead a life that's focused on your own interests and endeavors, you, you're, you've sort of escaped the tyranny of the group. Um, and you can, you know, you have the, the the time, the focus to invent the bow and arrow, or the iPad, or whatever. I mean, these incredible human innovations comes, they come out of people being very focused and individual in their interests. And um, but there's a real loss there. Um, the 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 experience of community is one of the things psychologists know. One of the things that buffers people from psychological troubles Um, during the Blitz in London, for example, things were quite communal. People slept in in the tube stations shoulder to shoulder with strangers. Um, There was an enormous collective effort in in London and other English cities during the Blitz to to survive the war. And the English government was prepared for mass psychiatric casualties because here's a civilian population that's getting bombed every night by uh, the German Air Force. And the opposite happened. Um, admissions to psych wards went down during the Blitz. Uh, as one, one official, British official said in surprise uh, that there were the, – that they had the chronic neurotics of peacetime driving ambulances. And what it seems to be is that if there's a crisis and you're part of a group, you're going to survive that – you're more likely to survive that crisis if you're part of a group and the group needs everybody to pitch in. Uh, New York saw this after 9-11 as Mm -hmm. well, of course. And that participation allows the individual to forget himself or herself, allows the person to to forget their own concerns, even their own neurotic concerns, and think about the welfare of the group. Um, Their survival is more likely if they do that, um, but it also alleviate some of the individual troubles that, that that people have. And when you have a lot of safety, and a lot of uh, luxury even, a lot of convenience, a lot of ease, it almost allows you this too much spare time to think about your own problems. And we see mental health deteriorate in those situations. The suicide rate goes up with affluence. The more affluent a country, the higher the suicide rate, the higher the depression rate, the higher the PTSD rate. It's counterintuitive, but it makes sense if you think about it.
2: Speaking of stepping outside of safety. One of your first jobs included you working as a high climber for tree removal companies. What sort of risk was involved with
0: that?
3: Yeah, I was a climber for tree companies. I would go up, uh, with a chainsaw on a line, um, and I'd set my line and I'd be swinging around taking limbs off and take, you know, topping the tree out and taking it down from the top down, um, rigging limb, limbs that were too big to just drop, um, So this is what was interesting about it. The risk was – there was no random risk. I realized that I would – I mean you're just dealing with the laws of physics. If you're topping out a big white pine and you do the cut wrong and the top 20 feet of the tree go the wrong way and come back on you and crush you, you did that. The tree didn't do it. The tree was just following the laws of physics and whatever the wind direction was and everything else. You made the cut wrong. And so all of the risk that I was taking was completely in my hands. I just had to not screw up. That's it, right? So it gave me this incredible presence of mind, this sort of zen, live in the moment, make sure – you know. It's like I was completely in control of my own fate. That's not true on a fire. It's not true when you're driving. Mm-hmm. It's not true in combat. There's a lot of random stuff that goes on. But 80 feet up on a white pine when you're topping it out, it's on you. Right, and so once I figured that out, I was just super careful, and I still got hurt. But I got hurt during a moment of carelessness. I, you know, I hit my leg with the chainsaw. The chainsaw didn't do that to me; I did that to me.
2: What kind of injury did you sustain after that?
3: I, I tore open the back of my leg, and and um, I could see my Achilles, but it was but it was intact. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had an interesting anatomy lesson. Um, but I, you know, it didn't hurt. I mean, it hurt later, but you know, when you get injured, often. I, I've heard about this people guys getting shot in combat. Like, um, the, the chainsaw tore up the back of my leg, and I had to. And I was going to keep working. And then I, it was an intellectual process. I was like, "No, something hit the back of my leg. The only thing down there was the chainsaw. I had to have been hit by the chainsaw. I better turn it off and check. Mm. Right? It was a completely abstract thing. And I've heard guys say that about getting hit. Like, I knew I got hit. I just didn't feel anything. I had to look for the bullet. Wound. Like. Um, so, anyways, you know, it's just the body and the mind protecting itself.
2: How do you think these early experiences then contributed to your ability to navigate uncertainty and um, complexity later in life?
3: I, I don't know if I am navigating uncertainty <laughs> and complexity very well. It's a
2: practice. It's a process. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, I mean, the first thing I learned with tree work is – just be super conscientious and responsible about the details because those are the things that keep you alive. And even in combat, I mean, there's a certain amount of randomness in it. But if your shoelaces are untied, that's not random. That's your choice, and you're not going to be able to run very far. You know, or just whatever. It's just the small details of uh, managing yourself in a combat situation. You have to stay on top of it. You know, and and you got to think about it. You got to think about everything. And that, that I partly got from from tree work.
2: So you're touching upon some of the industries that you've been able to study over the years: uh, fishing in New England, obviously, yeah. when you authored *The Perfect Storm*; wildland firefighting out west; uh, and combat in Afghanistan are a few of the high-risk trades that you've studied and written about. Who were the most resilient high-risk operators you've come across?
3: You know, I think uh, I mean this is a broad generalization, generalization, but people that go through risk in a group. And they can then process the experience in a group, I think, do much better than people that um, go through risk individually. Uh, I mean, say, if you get diagnosed with cancer, you're going through that by yourself. You might have friends around or whatever, but it's, you know, you're the one with cancer. It's very, very hard on people. Um, I knew a woman I, – I talked to a woman who had cancer and she was on a cancer ward for a while and, and she survived. She, she, she recovered and she said to me quite sadly, you know, now I miss being sick. She got through cancer because she was with other cancer sufferers and the experience of community with them was so powerful that she actually missed – like soldiers missing combat. She missed those those days of, of danger and closeness. So you know, I think what I would say in terms of resilience is that it, it, it's a, partly a function of how much community you have access to, how much community you're part of. Um, you know uh, – I know firemen. You know one of the things that they have is the firehouse kitchen. They can mm-hmm. talk about stuff. You know whatever they're they're um, forced into or wind up in a communal group. That it's very very therapeutic. But the other thing is, if you've been traumatized as a child, um, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you're way more likely to suffer PTSD from trauma and later in life as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's highly predictive of later life struggles with trauma so one part of resilience I think is having i, I I'm guessing is having a, a a healthy loving secure childhood and if you don't um, and I think we probably all know people like this if you don't you're you're at a, at a heightened risk of really struggling to process trauma later in life
2: speaking on that in recent years you've been very vocal about your concerns about the way we are addressing mental health concerns specifically with military vets. Can you um, articulate what some of your concerns are?
3: Yeah. I mean I think it's very – I mean I'm not a psychologist. So all everything I'm saying is based on the research of psychologists into this issue and my experience with soldiers. Um, and I think it's very important not to pathologize a normal process. So if you're traumatized, um, your body and your mind will react in certain – Uh, short-term ways to protect yourself, right? And it's it's called PTSD. It's a healthy response. It's like your body getting a fever when a pathogen has been introduced into it, right? The fever is not the illness. It's how the body is dealing with the illness to save you, to protect you. Well, likewise, the nightmares, the startled response, the depression, the anger, all those things are very healthy reactions to have if you've been traumatized. Um, It becomes problematic when that short-term reaction becomes a long-term chronic um, mm-hmm. issue, and so what you know, here's the thing that the government and the caretakers have to do: they have to responsibly treat the long, the the, the short-term reaction to trauma, without incentivizing people to make it a long-term problem. Because there are benefits there. are uh, social benefits, for example, you, you know, if you have PTSD, it means you fought bravely for your country. I mean, there's a, you know, you can, um, there's an assumption about you which is extremely positive, right? Um, you can get a three thousand dollar a month, you know, paycheck every month from the government if you have PTSD. I mean, what we don't, we want to take care of people, but not incentivize them to see themselves as broken, so that they get these other benefits, which they understandably want, but in the long term, it may not be good for them. What you want to do with with anybody is if they're struggling psychologically, the faster that you can get them back into being in a position of contributing to society, Mm -hmm. the more quickly they'll recover. Um, It's very hard to recover if society doesn't need you. And when we sort of warehouse veterans um, with a disability check saying, all right, we don't need you anymore. Uh, You don't. You don't need to contribute to society. We're going to pay you this money and forget about you. Like that's incredibly hard on on the human psyche. That people need to be needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to balance care with some sort of pressure to like reengage with society and become a productive citizens again. If if we don't pressure people to do that, they will really languish um, and they won't thrive. And the whole thing is enormously costly, financially and sort of in human terms.
2: What's some of the imbalances that veterans are having to deal with coming back to civilian life based on our modern society?
3: Well, here, you know, here's the thing. I mean, something like 10% of the US military is, is in, involved regularly involved in combat. Um and the the PTSD, what's called PTSD, the PTSD rate is like 20 something percent of the military, right? In Israel, it's now around 1%. Um so, what's going on with the people who weren't in combat but are claiming trauma? Like, what is that? Are they just making it up? No, probably not. I think most of them, maybe some are, but you know, most of them, I mean, there's always fraud in any bureaucratic system, there's some fraud, but you know, mostly I think they're honestly reporting like real psychological troubles when they come home. One of the troubles might be that they can't uh, uh, pinpoint a, a, traumatic cause for it. They were in a support unit, whatever. They were logistics, they were whatever. So what is the problem? Why are they so depressed when they come home? Must be PTSD. It's it's not. I think it's something else. I I think people, when you have to give up community, when you have to give that up and resume a individualistic life back home that doesn't have the immediate purpose that you have when you're in a platoon, uh, even in a support unit platoon, people can get really depressed. And that depression is serious, mm-hmm. right? It's just not PTSD. It's something else. It doesn't have to do with trauma. It has to do with the loss of community that comes with the end of your deployment and coming home. And, and it should be treated like that. Um, I, I don't think, I'm not sure the, the VA psychologists are always making that distinction, right? Oh, you were overseas? Now you're depressed. You have PTSD. It's the wrong diagnosis and the wrong treatment sometimes. And I know even Peace Corps volunteers, when they you know they they work in small communal environments in the third world, the small villages, whatever, they're exposed to the same kind of communal existence that <coughs> that veterans might be, um, and uh, that soldiers are. And one quarter of Peace Corps volunteers struggle with depression when they come home. Mm-hmm. Roughly the roughly the same percentage as so of, of veterans and soldiers that do. And so uh, to me, that's the sort of one crucial thing is to like, don't romanticize this. Don't, you don't need to make it more dramatic. It doesn't have to be about combat. It could just be about giving up one's brothers and sisters from our, from your unit. Um, and, and coming back to a society, which clearly, I mean, American society, society, which clearly is struggling. I mean, incredibly high rates of suicide and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, there's regularly as mass shootings in the streets, um, a, uh, drug epidemic that's killing tens of thousands of americans uh, um every year i mean clearly we're we're a society which is struggling and in a lot of pain and so they're coming back to that like oh you think they shouldn't have problems of course they're going to have problems coming back to this we all have problems
2: can you describe you just touched on it the term brotherhood and what it means to you
3: so the unit that i was with in afghanistan it was um uh, it was a platoon, about 40 men and it was all men in the 173rd Airborne and we were in a very remote valley on a little hill hilltop on a little outpost uh, that didn't have – at first didn't even have electricity. Uh, we never had um, – there was never any email or any connection to the outside world uh, except through the company radio. Um, and – one guy at one point the end, towards the end of the deployment, the guy – and I was I was out there off and on for a year along with my colleague Tim Etherington. So we covered a lot of the deployment, got to know the guys extremely well. We were in a lot of combat and we were in a lot of everything and one of the guys said to me once – he said, you know, it's funny. There's guys in the platoon who straight up hate each other but we would all die for each other and that made me realize the profound difference between friendship and brotherhood. So friendship, which is also a beautiful thing um, – but what your, your commitment to the other person is a function of how how much you like them. And if you don't like them very much, you have a very low commitment. If you like them a lot, you have a high commitment. With brotherhood, the connection, the commitment stems from the fact that you're all part of the same group. You're all part of the same group. So it's not dependent on how much you like that person. Thank God. Because if it were, the, the ability of the platoon to function, particularly function in the sort of like blast furnace of combat – would be constantly varying. It would be constantly wobbling depending on who was upset with who, right? I mean it can't be dependent on that. So what, what you have with brotherhood is this sort of institutionalized commitment. I don't know you very well. I don't necessarily like you. But you're my brother and I'll die for you if I need to and you will for me. And that, And if we all feel that way about each other regardless of our individual preferences, we'll all be safer and that feeling of brotherhood um and you know i think it's entirely possible for the word sisterhood to work in the same ways i'm just using the male because it was all men out there. There's no reason to think women can't function that way as well.
2: I just wanted to encourage listeners that, you know, based on this topic, you wrote an article for the National Review called The Anthropology of Manhood, which questions what we have lost by eliminating hardship and danger from everyday life. And for the record, I shared it with many of my female friends, Uh and it just, you know, inspired a lot of insightful thoughtful conversation. So it's oh. not just the term brotherhood, but yeah. that h- entire concept of going back to that tribal type yeah. of existence.
3: Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And it's all very very loaded. I did
2: some homework.
3: <laughs> it's you know, it's very low I mean all that gender stuff is very very loaded and 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 it's hard, and it's you know, it's politically delicate to talk about, but you know, obviously the the sexes are different. And in all of the mammal species, the sexes have different roles and are designed differently and have Different capacities, different abilities, different deficits. But um, I think what happens, you know, I keep getting the question like, you know, can women engage in combat? Like, but yeah, of course they can. Like, I mean, but to do that, they would have to adopt what they would have to adopt the the, the norms and the reactions and the sensibilities of a man in combat. I mean, there's. Men in combat have, ad- have adapted to that environment very, very well. So if a woman wants to be in combat, they have to adapt to the exact same thing and effectively be con- function like a man in combat. Mm-hmm. or they won't work out very well. And can they do that? Of course they can, or some can not you know there's a lot of men can- who can't do that either. Uh, so um, So at any rate, when I talk about brotherhood, that brotherhood, that commitment, that shared commitment could very, very easily include a woman. Or several, or whatever. I mean, there's no no problem. Um, Typically, human societies use men to do dangerous tasks that are outs that are that are outside of the group, hunting, warfare. Those are almost always male jobs. So when you when you when you talk about the kind of brotherhood that's required in those circumstances, those dangerous circumstances where everyone needs to be very very deeply committed to each other. Um, you're usually talking about men and you usually end up using the term brotherhood, but it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm.
0: Listeners. I'd like to take a moment to share that the ebook fire psych mental toughness and the valor mindset on the Fireground" is now available for purchase on the leadership under fire website. Click shop in the menu in the top right corner of the page and secure your copy for just $15. For those who don't know, FirePsych introduces and advances mental performance, concepts and skills using the Valor Mindset Framework. The central objective of FirePsych is to provide fire officers and firefighters with an improved understanding of human performance under operational stress, while introducing concepts and skills that enhance physiological function, self and situational awareness, and tactical resilience. When originally published in 2014, it joined a lengthy list of books that sought to enhance fireground performance and safety. However, it was the first book to exclusively examine the mental aspects of fireground performance. Dr. Mike Askin and Eric Nuremberg wrote the book in Leadership Under Fire's formative years, and the book has served as a primer for human performance optimization efforts in the FDNY, the Milwaukee Fire Department, and several other fire rescue departments.
2: I want to talk a little bit more about your success as a writer. Uh, what are some of the practices that you've used to enhance your work and you know, maybe overcome any challenges?
3: <laughs> well, I read a lot. I never studied English or creative writing in, in high school or college, but um, I read a lot, a lot. I read a lot of really good writers, and I learned from them. I'd, I would take notes. I'd underline stuff. Why did I like that paragraph? Why did I not like that paragraph? Um, and I wrote a lot. And I, I and I learned how to read my own work very very critically. And and if you're you know if if you're it's very easy to slide into a kind of fatuousness, a kind of faux wisdom, uh, faux profundity with writing. I mean, you just have to be constantly on guard for your own your own instinct to sort of pose as to, to pose with a persona as a writer. I mean, you have to be constantly riding yourself not to fake anything. Um, so I I, you know, I just I read a lot, I wrote a lot, I tried to keep my eyes open to the world. Um usually walk around with a notebook, pen to write in, you know like I just write stuff down, things I overhear, things I think. Um, later in my life there be, there came a choice that came to all of us, which is do you buy a smartphone? Right? and i just didn't i'm like <laughs> i'm not getting sucked into that thing like it will take too much energy too much of my creative bandwidth is going to go into doing a, the repetitive tasks of email and all that stuff while i'm walking around in the world this mm-hmm. is all like this is i only get a few decades in this place right and i don't want to spend it inside a little machine you know i want to spend it in the world looking around and absorbing it and and um i, I don't think you can be a I mean this is a biased statement. Personally, I think, I think it's very hard to be an effective, powerful writer if you're spending a significant part of your um, energy, your, your waking life looking at a screen. I just don't think it's possible.
2: So then how did you transition into filmmaking?
3: I just – I got a uh, – I, I realized that there were situations that um, um, were moving too fast to take notes accurately. So I'd been in combat a little bit, and the notes that you take <laughs> in combat are pretty much illegible, and you pre- feel pretty stupid writing things down while someone's shooting at you. It's just a no-win situation. So I thought, ah, you don't need to be a cameraman to record this situation. Like, yeah, I'm, I'll just I'll buy a video camera, and I'll, when when things are moving too fast to write down, um, I'll videotape them, and that'll be how I'll take notes while things are moving really quickly. And uh, then when I decided to write a book about a pl- being with a platoon off and on for a year in Afghanistan, I thought, you know, if I'm going to spend that much time out there, I might as well shoot a lot of video. It'll help with my note taking, and maybe I can make a documentary film. Who knows? So, so the I, you know, I got a cam- I, I got a camera, and um, and just shot everything I could. And and I mean that that's a very different topic from iPhones. I mean, it is yes, it's technology, but it's not the sort of um, immersive experience that an iPhone can be.
2: Yeah, it just it was a platform to be a historical record for you.
3: Yeah, I mean the ca- like you know it's like soldiers had guns, I had a camera and every time things whatever if anything interesting was going on the camera was on and I was absorbing it through the camera sometimes with my notebooks but you know often um uh you know I mean there were different like a conversation at night, right? That's a that's a time to write things down in your notebook cuz the camera's not going to catch anything. Mm-hmm. Right, combat is a great situation for a camera. You know, I, I started to realize that there's if you're sitting quietly in a village and you want to convey to the reader what it feels like to be in Afghanistan, you might take your note out, your notebook out, and just sit there and look around and see what catches your eye. And try to describe that that house and that, that pretty little creek that runs through the village. You know, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Some ways a notebook's better than a camera for something like that. So I tried to figure out what was best for each medium, um, and. Uh, But it's still – none of that experience with the technology of cameras, which is amazing. Films are amazing. None of that made me want to buy a smartphone.
2: What you're describing seems quite artistic because it's a creative process. And you recently closed your restaurant and bar, The Half King, here in New York due to increasing rents and financial demands on small business owners. Um, What – And it was actually a place where a lot of creatives would come together. What role does art play in society, in your opinion?
3: Uh, it's a good question. Um, I'll try to be... I'll try try to give you some insight. Um, uh, Art's a different way of looking at the world, right? I mean, art... uh, My mother's an artist. She's a painter. And I realized when I was young that I would want to look at – if she made a painting of a tree, the painting of the tree was a lot more interesting than the tree, right? Like I might glance at the tree. I might look at it for a few moments. But you, I could look at my mother's painting of the tree for an hour. It's showing me – the painting was showing me something about the essence of a tree and our human relation to what trees are that the tree itself couldn't communicate. And so I think what art – I think what art does is allow us to experience and to understand more deeply our relationship with the world, with each other and with ourselves. And the, the, the sort of raw, naked facts of existence as we, as we experience them don't necessarily allow us or invite us to do that. But when you watch a film or look at a painting or read a book – or a poem, or listen to music, this door opens in us um, and that invites us to step through and see things in a completely different way. And I think often the the way that you're invited to perceive them is that actually – you know, you are – as an individual, you don't matter. The universe endures. What's your what, – there's what, a sort of transcendent moment of, oh my god, I'm part of the universe. Like – and I think music can transport you like that. I mean anything can. Wow, I'm part of the universe, which means I'm going to die. But I'm part of this thing. I'm part of the human race. You know, you can get mm-hmm. these very moving tra- um, transcendent thoughts and that that actually – that's a human being inching closer towards a sort of existential truth. About the, you know the nature of things
2: I recently heard somebody else articulate this and it resonated with me that art is an offering yeah. and that was pretty profound and I think sometimes artists struggle with monetizing what they do because of that right. because it's so personalized
3: you know if you're creating art just just for money it it might not even be art right it's a commodity um, there's a wonderful there's a book called the Gift by Lewis Hyde, H-Y-D-E. came out in 1979. And his argument is that before capitalism, human societies existed in what he called a gift economy, where the society was kept together by the ritual giving of gifts between people. Um, You can still see that a little bit in tips, in Christmas, you know, Christmas presents, there's still vestiges of that in in our capitalist society. I mean, people get Christmas presents; they could easily go out and buy the same thing, but because it was a gift, it has more meaning. That's the nature of the gift economy. And he said one of the most profound examples of a gift is the gift that an artist gives society um, a, a a creation that came through them uh, and was given to society for its use. And and he the point he made was that. If the artists feel that the creation was theirs, uh, it's not art. The artist has to feel that it was – that they're a medium for it, that they're a channel for it, that they were actually chosen to communicate something from a greater um, – communicate something for the greater good that comes from beyond and is transmitted through them to society. And if you're not feeling it like that – you're really not engaged in art. And so I know as a writer, when I am writing something that is that feels profoundly true, it doesn't feel like it's coming out of me. It feels like someone's whispering it in my ear. And I'm in this privileged position of being the chosen messenger to communicate this to people. And I'm sure I'm, – I'm an atheist. I don't go to church. But I'm sure people, the men and women of God who really are engaged in the, the sort of – in 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 God's work with people. Um, They must feel the same thing, that they're just transmitting a greater power. It's not about them. Um, That that to me is the the proper place of art and the artist in society.
2: I did read a New York Times article, I believe it was the New York Times, about when you were writing The Perfect Storm, you were holed up in a cabin in a cold place and you only put the heat on after you were done writing a certain amount. Is that true?
3: (laughs) You Did know, I, I, I was really broke. because my parents. My parents had a summer house on Cape Cod that had no insulation and it was a really, really cold winter back when we had lots of snow and all that before global warming ruined everything. <laughs> and, uh, it was a very cold weather, winter with a lot of snow and, and it had electric heating, which is really expensive. And I'm, I'm fru- you know, I'm like environmentally conscious enough and frugal enough and stoic enough. That like I'm not just going to run the heap so I heat all the time so I can be comfortable. I only need to be comfortable when I'm writing. So to turn the baseboard heating on the little restaurant, uh, into the, restaurant the little um, mm-hmm. bedroom that I'd, that I'd sort of hold up in, um, I, to turn it on, I had to be working. And otherwise I slept in a ski cap and a sleeping bag and the drinking water would freeze in my, I mean, literally there was snow. There was snow in the house that I tramped in that just never melted. Mm. It was pretty cold in that house.
2: That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> but going back to your restaurant. Are you concerned about working class America and some of the issues they have to deal with?
3: Of course. Um, The income gap seems to be getting worse and worse in this country. Um, Humans are naturally very egalitarian. I mean our evolutionary roots have us surviving in groups of 30, 40, 50 people in a harsh environment. Um, You can have a hierarchy of authority but you can't have a hierarchy of equality in a situation like that. People really do need to be equal even if they have different levels of responsibility. That's – there's a lot of evidence, a lot of data that that's our evolutionary heritage. So in modern society as you have – when you have people have um, not just 10 times as much money or 100 times as much money but thousands and thousands of times as much money as other people, you're – it's a very unstable situation. And so, um, I, I yeah, I do worry about – I do worry about the society and the working class. I mean, you know, as I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but as um, in New York City, as rents go up, small businesses struggle. I mean, we ran the half king at zero profit for years and we and we finally closed when money was coming out of our bank accounts to keep it afloat. And then we just had to pull the plug on it. But you know, there are 50 people who work there Mm -hmm. and they all lost their jobs. um, When and I, you know, I'm I've voted Democratic my whole life and I always thought. I've always believed that minimum wage – raising minimum wage is a good thing and I never really believed the Republican concerns like you raise minimum wage, you lose jobs. I never believed that. I was like that's just – that's an excuse. you know. Like that was, this is my mind. That's what I thought. And then I watched, I watched it happen at my own restaurant. Minimum wage went up. We were faced with the prospect of closing our doors. In a last-ditch measure, we fired half the kitchen, mm. half the kitchen staff. We had to do it to keep the place open and suddenly I, I watched myself doing exactly what Republicans said happened – when minimum wage goes up, so they're very, very complex questions. But it's not obvious. Um, it's not the, the what's good for American people, what's good for the working class, is extremely complicated. It's not obvious, and neither the left wing nor the right wing has all the answers. But I'm not even sure society is really looking for the right answers. I think we live in a society that maximizes profit for the elite, and um, and until we stop thinking that way, I think everyone's going to suffer.
2: I'm gonna leave that there and segue to another complex and complicated topic fatherhood
3: ah uh, yes
2: <laughs> congratulations Thank you have you. a daughter have which a t- you've welcomed later in life I understand
3: yeah yeah. Um, yeah that's right I'm 57 I have a little two-year-old girl um, and uh, I- I'm not even sure I'm not even sure what to say about it other than it's completely transformed my understanding of what it is feels like to be alive? Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, just holding, I mean, it's just it's a simple thing of holding her, carrying her. Um, you know, we carry her, we don't have a baby stroller or anything, we just, we carry her everywhere in a sling and mm. just doing that. Like, it's, I, I mean, I don't even have words to describe how good that feels. And, uh, you know, I think we live in a society, some societies are more physical, more sort of touchy than others. and, and, and I don't think we live in a very physically connected society. I don't think people touch each other very much. Uh, children sleep in their own bedrooms, and they, you know, whatever. Like there's a lot of separation, and I think it's very hard on people psychically. Um, we need human touch. I mean, mm. the more of it, the better. They, the one study that I read, this is in my book, Tribe, um, in uh, small-scale human hunter-gatherer societies of the sort that sort of typify our evolutionary past. And in other primate, social primate species, uh, infant, skin on skin contact between infants and parents is as high as 96% of the time. Hmm. And in the American suburb, it's as low as 16%. Um, if you, if you take a baby chimpanzee and reduce their, their skin on skin contact with their mother to 16% of the time, you can make them psychotic is really, really hard on people mm. uh, and on chimps, so I uh, you know for me that that touch the human touch is is maybe the most important thing for their first years of our lives and and uh, and and the added benefit is that it makes the parent feel incredibly good as well
2: mm. what are some other things that parents can do or values that they can instill in their children to help navigate society
3: um, well if you're a parent with young children there's an amazing um Website called uh, Evolutionary Parenting, very simple Evolutionary Parenting, and it talks about how to incorporate um, our evolutionary past into parenting in modern society, right? And and uh, it's it, it's a really really good way to start as parents um, in in raising your child. But then you know later in life, I I mean I guess I'm going to confront this as our, my little girl gets older. Um, it, I, I feel like this society, this society commodifies everything and I think one one of the things I'll be telling my little girl is be careful. Um, people will try to sell you things that should be natural human experiences. They will try to peddle them to you. So you actually can't get a satisfying human relationship via the internet. You actually have to at some point have to be in a room with someone to have a real human experience with them. Um, uh, you if, if you're rafting down the Colorado River, it's a profound experience whether you're taking selfies of yourself or not, right? You don't need to commodify it. You can just actually have the experience. And I feel like this society, it, it, when you – you can monetize – that the society monetizes human experiences, uh, which of course in the capitalist system, it makes total sense. And capitalism has brought us a huge amount of good. But as an individual, we have to be careful of being robbed. Uh, we, of being robbed of basic important human experiences because our society has figured out how to how to monetize them and then sell them back to us. It's pretty crazy. When you stand back a little bit and think about mm-hmm. it, it's it, it's actually completely insane.
2: So how do you think our modern segmented society will affect resilience at the individual and group levels?
3: Well, I mean, we know that as affluence goes up in the society, the suicide rate goes up, the depression rate goes up. Uh, you know, I think the, the people in our society—the more access they have to a close group of people that they trust—the um, more resilient they'll be. And and um, uh, you know, one of the firemen I talked to at Rescue Two—he uh, was in a short documentary saying, talking about how uh, how the firemen had um, survived, psychologically survived nine eleven, having lost so many of their brothers he said very simple the firehouse kitchen Mm -hmm. they stood around in the firehouse kitchen and cooked stuff and talked and that went on as long as it needed to and it's still going on a lot of people don't have access to the firehouse kitchen and they're still going to get traumatized their kid's going to die their wife's going to get cancer they're whatever they're going to have a car accident they're going to get I mean all kinds of things happen in life and we live in a society where that firehouse kitchen is a very rare and precious thing and very few people have access to it and So the people, the people who will show resilience, you know, like Londoners during the Blitz, like New Yorkers after 9-11, the people who will show resilience are the people who have access to a community that they identify with and that they're willing to sacrifice maybe even their lives for.
2: Listeners, uh, unfortunately, the film that Sebastian is talking about right now is internal to the fire department, and I produced it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one day we'll be able to share it, but um, for for the time being.
3: (laughs) So I hope I didn't reveal any secrets. Not at all. I don't think so. But I
2: do want to share that if you want to learn more about Sebastian younger, Younger and the work that he's done, you can visit his website, SebastianYounger.com. And if you want to explore more about the Leadership Under Fire Endeavor, you can go to LeadershipUnderFire.com. So Sebastian, thank you for taking the time to be here today and being so generous with your knowledge.
3: I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning into the episode. Please note that the 2020 Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development course is still on. The LDC will take place from September 27th to October 2nd, 2020 at The Farm in Western Maryland. It consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The Leadership Under Fire advisory team for the event includes LUF founder Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, Lieutenant Danny Murphy of FDY's and Rescue Company 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Registration is limited, so act fast. Visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the Events tab to register. If you want to learn more about previous LDC events, Tune into episode 21, Developing Mission Oriented Leaders with Eric Nuremberg.
2: Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com.